Now in scripture, there are some amazingly heroic people. You know, many of these people were prophets and kings and military people. And, and, and some of them are just well-known people that have done amazing things for God. Amazing things for God. When you think about people like um, Noah, for example. Noah built an ark to save the human race. Think about Moses who led the people out of slavery, out of Egypt. Think about Joshua who took down Jericho. Think about David who took out a giant Goliath. Some big names that we all know. We've all heard the stories. Very famous. When we would say those are kind of those are guys with statue. They look like heroes. They sound like heroes. But many more times in Scripture, we see God choose the ordinary or the unlikely to do some amazing things for him. Think about the little boy that shared his meager lunch with Jesus. And Jesus turned around and took and fed 5,000 people with it. Think about the woman at the well who met Jesus. And not only did she meet him, but she ran back to her village to tell all the people about him. And they came out to meet Jesus. And their lives were changed forever. Do we see again and again through Scripture, people rise up and to do things of significance for God. Many of them are people like the little boy, and the woman at the well. They're unlikely heroes. And when we really look at their lives and who they are and what their heritage is and their, their family traits, many of them are just like you and me. Ordinary people placed in circumstances to do something amazing for God. And one of those unlikely heroes is Esther. And when you look at her life, is an orphan Jew. No mother, no father, exiled from her land. But God used her to do amazing things. So open up your Bibles to the book of Esther. And as you do that, I want to take a time to set a little bit of context. So in 586 BC, the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, came into Judah, the southern kingdom, and wiped them out. In the third and final wave, they took them out. They wiped out the temple. They decimated the people. Whoever was left, except a few thousand, they left a few thousand behind. They picked up the rest of the Jews, and they took them back to, to Babylonia. Almost 50 years later, in 539 BC, the Medo-Persians came in, and they conquered the uh, Babylonians. So now the Persians are rolling. And then uh, one year later, in 538 BC, King Cyrus issues a decree to send the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild their land and to rebuild the temple. Okay? But some of them don't go back. They choose to stay. Some of them, even from the lines, are just, they're in, they're settled, they've got jobs, they've got homes, and they just decide they were there for such a long period of time. And even some of King Saul's family decided to stay, including his brother's grandson, Mordecai. And a little more than 50 years later, in 485 BC, King Xerxes becomes the fourth king in the Persian Empire. 
in the Persian Empire at this point is the greatest that the world had ever seen. It actually was, you look how vast this was. It expanded from the northern part of Africa up through the um, Arabian Peninsula, all the way through the Middle East to India, all the way up into Eastern, Western Europe. It's estimated through that vast land that there are 50 million people that are captured in the Persian Empire. 50 million people. Now, early in his role, King Xerxes was planning to attack Greece. And to do this, he called together this big summit. He called all the military people and all the nobles from all 127 provinces to come into Susa and to plan for this attack against Greece. They spent six months together, 180 days, planning this out. And at the end of this planning session, he hosts a banquet that lasts seven days. And he's doing this in anticipation of this victory that's going to come against Greece. And this seven-day festival was nothing but essentially a drunken orgy. And at the end of this seven days, um, King Xerxes wants to show off his wife, Queen Vashti. And he summons for her to come out in front of everybody. But Queen Vashti refuses to do it. We don't know why she refuses to do it. Some speculate because she was pregnant. Some speculate that she wasn't going to be made a fool of in front of all these drunken people. But what we do know is Queen Vashti refused to come out. Now you can imagine what's going through King Xerxes' head. He's not too pleased with what's going on. So he gets with his noblemen and they decide she's got to go. Right? We cannot have the queen diss the king if we do that and we let her get away with that, we're going to lose control of the women in the empire. Figure 50 million people, half of them are probably women. So 25 million women would be impacted by this decision. So they decide, you know what? She's got to go. So King Xerxes goes out. They attack Greece. He has a victory, ends up losing two battles, and then he returns to Susa, really a double loser after losing his last two battles. And to kind of make him feel a little bit better and to use it as distractions, the noblemen decide, you know what? You need a queen. It's been four years since you got rid of Vashti. It's time for you to have another queen. And so what they do is they decide that they're going to go out throughout this whole empire from northern Africa through all of India to find the most beautiful virgins for the king, for him to choose one for himself. Now you can imagine going from province to province, to village to village, searching for the most beautiful women in the land. And you know, I've never ceased to be amazed by God's providence. And we're going to see this unfold through the story. So first of all, think about it. Esther is an exiled people. Right? Her ancestors were picked up out of Jerusalem, brought into Susa, where the king happened, the king Xerxes would later be installed, and just so happened to be young, and just so happened to be beautiful, and happened to be a virgin, and just so happens that out of 25 million women, 
the, the, the noblemen spot this girl and look at her as a candidate to be the queen. And the historian Josephus goes on to say, not only was she a candidate, but she was one of 400 women that were chosen to be put in front of the king. That she was, this little Jewish orphan girl, was chosen as one of the most 400 most beautiful women in all of Persia. That's amazing to me. She's not even of their heritage. And then get this. They take those 400 beautiful women and they put them in a beautification process for a year. What do you have to do to 400 beautiful women to make them more beautiful? What are they doing in a year? You know, I don't even want to know. But I know one thing, I promise never to give Mary a hard time about how long it takes her to get ready to go somewhere. But while in his harem, Esther quickly like wins the confidence of everyone around her. But yet she still keeps quiet her Jewish heritage just as Mordecai instructed her. Ultimately, Esther gets called to go in front of the king and wouldn't you know it, Esther is chosen to be queen. I don't know about you, but it sounds like a little like Cinderella to me. Right? That the little orphan girl catches the eye of the king and she becomes queen. I mean, think about what is going on in Esther's head. Orphan, no mother and father, raised by a cousin in a foreign land, they're thinking, what is going on? How did I get picked for this? But we'll see that God had a plan for Esther. God was guiding what was going on. God also had his hand over Mordecai as well. And this is evidenced by the position that he had within the empire. See, he sat at the king's gate and this was the fact because he was part of the judicial system of the empire. And look at God's providence. He takes Mordecai, plates him right by this gate, just close enough in earshot that he can hear two of the king's officials plotting to kill him. Now, if you're plotting to kill somebody, you're not out at the king's gate saying, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go in the back room and, and be screaming. No, they're going to be sitting there whispering about what they're doing. But yet God was placed, God placed Mordecai in close enough distance to hear the whispers going on. And what does Mordecai do? Mordecai alerts them. Look at Esther chapter 2, verse 22. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on the gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So that's crazy. He takes Mordecai. God takes Mordecai, puts him right by this gate for him to hear what they're doing. Puts Esther, installs Esther as the queen. Mordecai has a relationship with the queen, gets the message to her. Queen tells King Xerxes. King Xerxes foils the assassination attempt. And they write it in the book of annals. 
Now file that away because that's going to become important later. We'll come back to that. Now in the meantime, Haman, one of the nobles, along with King Xerxes, was given a promotion. And in putting this place of prominence, this place of honor, the people were to bow to him. So as he goes to the city gates, all the people bow down to Haman. That is with the exception of Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to do it. And when he's questioned about doing it, Mordecai tells him, it's because I am a Jew. So he outs himself and what his background and what his nationality is. And as you can imagine, Haman is not too pleased with this. So Haman goes back to King Xerxes and says, listen, there are these certain people that aren't doing what they're supposed to do, and we've got to get rid of them. We can't have that in the Persian Empire. So King Xerxes listens and puts a decree in place against these certain people, the Jews, which King Xerxes doesn't realize, seals it, and it's done. So the, Jew, the fate of the Jews is recorded, and a date on a calendar is set for them to be annihilated. Now, when Mordecai hears about this, it says that he is struck with grief. Can you imagine what's going through his mind? So the Jewish people are now under decree from the ruler of the largest empire in the world to be annihilated, to be exterminated. And it all points to and started with Mordecai's refusal to bow down to Haman. So word, his, 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 his grief and his demonstration of putting on sackcloth and everything out at the city gates is so public that word of it gets back to Queen Esther. Queen Esther, living in her queen bubble, doesn't know anything that's going on, sends two eunuchs out to the city gate to talk to Mordecai to find out what is going on. Okay, look at um, Esther chapter 4, the second part of verse 8. So it says Mordecai goes and shows him the, the decree because it was sent to all the provinces. Take this and let Esther read it. In the second part of verse 8, it says, Then he told him, right? Mordecai told the eunuch, Urge Queen Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. But Esther's response was not exactly what Mordecai was planning on. So they come back to Mordecai. Look at verse 11, what Esther's response is. All the king's official and all the people of the royal provinces. That means, hey, Mordecai, everybody knows. Everybody knows that you, uh, I lost my place here, that everyone knows you do not approach the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king but has one law, that he will be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to be in front of the king. So Esther is like, hold on one second, Mordecai. I am not going in front of the king. 
standing in front of him and asking him anything. Because I could die. And I am not quite willing to do that. And sends that message back to Mordecai. And Mordecai, hearing this, clearly not happy, leans in and challenges Esther. Look at chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape, right? He's talking about escaping the annihilation. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? Don't miss this right here. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. So I love how Mordecai is so confident that God is going to save them. He's saying, hey, Esther, don't worry. God is going to save us. I know the promises that God made to Abraham and Moses and David. God will save us. The question to you, Esther, are you going to be part of it? Are you going to do something? Because if you don't, you are certainly, you and your family are certainly going to pay a price. When a message gets sent back, Esther takes it to heart and look at her response in verses 15 and 16. She basically says, okay, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my maids will fast, right? In, inherent in that is prayer, as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Basically, Esther saying, it is what it is. I'll go and I'll do it. So you think about all those circumstances and all these things working in Mordecai's life at this point and Esther's at this point. Now watch how God works. So first of all, Esther goes in front of the king and the good news is she doesn't get killed. He raises the gold scepter because she pleases him. But not only that, the king says to Esther, why are you here? I know you need something. Ask me and up to half the kingdom is yours. But Esther doesn't say what's on her heart. Esther invites King Xerxes and Haman to a banquet in their honor. So they go to this banquet. He puts on this banquet. And again, King Xerxes says to Esther, Esther, I know there's something that you want. Please tell me anything you wish up to half the kingdom. It's yours. But then again, Esther doesn't say what's on her mind she invites them to a second banquet. Now, we don't know why she did this. We can only speculate whether she was just simply afraid. Uh, maybe uh, King Xerxes was in a bad mood and she didn't expect to get the answer um, that she had hoped for. Right? You know how we are with our spouses. Sometimes we kind of pick our spots when to ask certain things. Right? Maybe Esther wasn't feeling it at that moment. So I think she invites him to a second banquet. 
Now, before that second banquet ever happens, Haman runs, has another run-in with Mordecai. And Haman's head at this point is about ready to pop off. He is beside himself and decides Mordecai has to go. So he talks to his people, his family, and they decide that they're going to knock him off. So they build a gallows in which that they are going to hang him in. So with this mindset and with this on his mind, Haman and King Xerxes go off to this second banquet. And again, the king asks Esther, Esther, what is on your heart? What is it that you want? Up to half the kingdom is yours. And then finally, finally, Esther says what's on her heart. Okay, look at Esther verse, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, lost my spot here. So he goes back and has this, um, um, the, I, I completely lost my train of thought. I apologize. My daughter had surgery on Thursday. My brain's a little bit of mush. So they go back and they have this, this thing. And so Queen Esther says, she tells him what's going on. He says, you will not believe, but we are going to be exterminated. He has this instance. And so the night before, God intervenes. And I told you the King Xerxes um, writes down, they write down in the book of Annals what went on um, when Mordecai saved the king from annihilation. Remember that when we were going to assassinate him? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. It says, that night the king could not sleep, right? Divine intervention. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So think about that sequence of events, right? So first of all, the king can't sleep, okay? It's God's divine intervention, He's laying there awake. He can't fall asleep. Secondly, he chooses to have somebody read to him. He has somebody read to him to help him fall asleep. Of all the things to do, right? He doesn't count sheep. He doesn't count the stars in the sky. He doesn't take any NyQuil. He has somebody read to him. And when they choose what to read to him, they choose the particular volume where this Mordecai story is captured. Now, King Xerxes is ruling for 12 years at this point. He could have read from the book where he uh, defeated Greece, where the skirmishes that he had, the parties that he had, but it just so happened that his librarian chose the story where Mordecai saved him. And in hearing this and remembering this, Think about what is going through the king's mind. Look at Esther chapter 6, verse 3. He says, What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. And these following verses drip with irony. They just drip 
with irony. So the king calls for Haman. Now Haman's close by. And why is Haman close by? Because he wants to take out Haman. He, he wants to take out Mordecai. He's there to ask the king to allow him to allow him to hang Mordecai in the gallows that he had prepared. But the king looks at Haman and says, Hey, Haman, how do we honor people around here? What do we do for somebody that does something above and beyond? And Haman's thinking, this is about me. <laughs> he, he wants to honor me. And he said, that's a good plan. He talks about robes and bestowing these things upon him. And King Xerxes says, that's great. Go bestow those on Mordecai. And Haman has to go and bestow these honors and thanks on Mordecai. So you can imagine the state of mind that Haman's in. So they go into the banquet, that second banquet, and he asks Queen Esther again, what is it that I can do for you? Up to half the kingdom is yours. And Queen Esther finally says what's on her mind. Look at chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughtered and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. She finally did it. She finally told the king what was on her heart. And when he responds, right, look what happens. He wants to know who's doing this. Who was doing this against the queen's people? Look at verse 6 in chapter 7. Esther says, the adversary and enemy is the vile Haman. Remember when Haman had the king issue decree against those certain people? King Xerxes never knew that it was against the Jews. So you can imagine that's his queen and those are her people. So queen, King Xerxes is not happy. And in another bit of irony, he looks and says, Haman, you got to go. And he sends him out to be hung in the very gallows that he built to hang Mordecai. And King Xerxes gives Mordecai all of Haman's estate. So happy ending, right? Well, not just yet. Because the king, the, the order to kill off all the Jews was still in place. So Esther makes one last plea to the king. Look at chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadotha, and Agite, 
devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? You see, the problem in that time is when a king issued a decree, it could not be reversed. It could not be undone. So the date that was set was in stone. There was nothing could happen, but the king could issue something that could help the Jews. And in God's providence, he allows Mordecai to write the decree that's going to help the Jews. Look at chapter 8, verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder their property of their enemies. And with this right firmly established, the Jews assembled to protect their cities. And on the very day that they were to be overtaken, March 7th, 437 BC, when, they, when that day came, the Jews were ready. And instead of being overtaken and exterminated, the Jews struck down all of their enemies. The Bible says more than 75,000 people. And the last little bit of irony that we see in this story is that the very day that Haman looked forward to the extermination of his enemies became a day of celebration for the Jewish people. And this celebration, the festival of Purim, is still celebrated by the Jewish people today. It's a time of feasting. It's a time of rejoicing and sharing a meal and giving gifts. To remember the day that their sorrow against them turned to joy. It was a day that they remembered that the Jews struck down all of their enemies. And it's all because of an unlikely hero. Esther. An exiled Jewish virgin orphan that stepped up and spoke on behalf of God's people. I mean, this is an amazing story when you look at God's hand all throughout it. But you know what amazes me? King Xerxes' name is mentioned in this story 175 times. How many times is God's name mentioned in this story? Zero. But yet God's hand is over every event and person in this story. God's hand is over the life of Esther and Mordecai. He had a plan for them in where they were. God's the one that orchestrated these events. You see, there's no miracle recorded in this book like we see in the Gospels and some of the other, all the Old Testament. But the whole book, the whole story is a miracle of God's providence in action. See, God used an unlikely hero in Esther, an exiled orphan, to save his people from extermination. So Esther was clearly 
by any account, an unlikely hero in God's plan. So in closing this story, there's three things that I want you to take away from the story about Esther. The first one is that God has a plan for your life. God set a plan in motion, the plan of salvation for the Jews, and he was, no, he was using an unknown Jewish virgin to make it happen. And guess what? He has a plan for you also in saving his people. That is why he's put you in a family that he has put you in. That's why he has put you in a neighborhood that he's put you in. That's why he's put you in the job that he's put you in. He's given you the brothers and sisters, the mothers and the fathers, the co-workers and the neighbors and the friends. That's why he's put you exactly where you're at in your life circumstance. To share with those people about God's plan for their lives. To share with those people in your life and in your circumstances God's plan for salvation. So your circumstances are not a bunch of random things put in order for God's amusement. He's created you with a plan and a purpose. Ephesians 2 chapter 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And that amazes me that God, the creator of the universe, that can... can the, wave his hand to do anything that he wants. He's the one that placed the stars in the sky, placed the water on the earth, formed man, and created man, formed woman. He could do anything he wants, but he chooses to use you and me to bring people to himself. And he's put us in exactly the circumstances that we are in, surrounded by the people that we have around us to be able to do that. He has a plan for every one of us since before time. And because he does, this brings me to my second point, that Satan has a plan for your life as well. 60% of Americans do not believe in the devil. I can tell you that I am one of the 40% that do believe. We can see through history that Satan has been working nonstop to stop God's plan of salvation for his people. We saw him in Egypt try to kill all the males because he knew a savior was going to be born. We saw Satan lead a whole generation of Jews astray in the desert and never reach the promised land. We see Satan here in Esther trying to exterminate the Jews through Haman. And Satan finally thought he won when he nailed, when they saw Jesus nailed to the cross at Calvary. But boy, was Satan wrong. But Satan today continues to work overtime against all Jews and all Christians to destroy us, to defeat us, to steal our souls. Listen to Jesus' very words, John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
So my warning to you is this. Beware. Because Satan has a plan for your life. And that is to stop you from achieving what God has created you to do. Beware. Satan's desire is for you to not do what God has created you to do. And that leads me to my third point, is that you have a choice to make. Just like Esther. God's going to save his people. So the real question that Esther had to answer, is she going to be part of it? Is the same question that faces us today. God has placed us exactly in the circumstances we are in to help him bring people to himself. We're either going to choose to be part of it or we're not. And if we choose to be part of it, we have to act in faith. And we know when we act in faith that that involves risk. Because when we reach out to those around us and our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, there's risk in that. We could be made fun of. We could be laughed at. We could be excommunicated from the family. We could not be invited to the parties anymore. We could get fired from our jobs. But God's placed you there. God's put those people in your lives. So just like Esther... We've got a choice to make. Are we going to step out in faith, which requires our trust? As we sang, trust without borders, trust without boundaries, that God is the one that placed us there, that God has given us everything that we need to work in the lives of those around us, to be a witness for Jesus Christ. So are you going to be an unlikely hero? Are 